Welcome to We've Got the Beef, a podcast created to help producers navigate best practices for their production system through information updates and timely tips for the upcoming season. I'm your host, Javi Carter, and I cannot wait to connect you with industry specialists to give you the latest scoop. Did you know that there are actually beef producers in Ontario using automated feed pushers in their barns? The use of new technology in a beef production system can sometimes seem unattainable, especially if you haven't heard of anybody else doing it before. So today I have Ken Schaus from Schaus Land and Cattle Company Limited, and we'll be chatting about their innovative management systems. Hopefully this will give you some ideas to implement on your own farm. Hi, Ken. It's a pleasure to have you on as a guest with me today. Good. No, it's good to be here. Thanks. I'm really looking forward to learning about your operation and specifically a new build that I've heard is in the works. I also really want to learn about your experiences with the automated feed pusher. But before we dive into anything too deep, would you mind sharing some background on your career path and the growth of your production system? Sure. So I joined my father right out of high school. And that was in 1984. I went to Walkerton High School, got my grade 12. And back then, that was the career path most of my classmates made as well. Walla, he's a 63 grand at Guelph. And he started in the feed business. I worked for Swift Canadian Company selling feed. And, and in the late 60s, he put hog loops together and started placing some feeder cattle. And then he quit that and uh, built the stockyards here in Ellenwood. And we've been on site for 50 years here. And uh, we built a new stockyards pretty well the year I got out of high school. And he asked me if I would try it for a year. And I've been here ever since. The longest year ever. Yeah. You know, we, uh, we complement each other well. And he still works seven days a week. And I'm here all the time too. So It seems like there's been significant growth in your operation over the last many years. And I'm wondering how you are able to manage this. So if I go back into the you know, the history books here around what I've done. I, I remember seeing uh, rail cars unloaded from Western Canada with calves. I remember when the first Charlie calf ever came into this uh, stockyards, that wasn't a Hereford steer. And, you know, we, we used to have most of Bruce County, it seemed like it was all in pasture and, you know, well-fenced and, and there's a lot of cattle grazed. So we started placing cattle to customers and putting them in on feed and grazing quite a few cattle ourselves. And over time, you know, we added a feedlot in 1985 over at Brentwood, which held at the time 2,000 cattle, and that was very big. You know, I got out of high school and interest rates were 21%. And uh, I tell people that. And most people said, you know, don't get into agriculture, there's no future. And the 21% interest rates eliminated a generation of farmers, which also created some opportunities as well. But I learned early on that if you're going to take advantage of those opportunities, you know, you really should have good people around you and if we didn't have that over the years you know our growth strategy would have been totally different i've got some staff members that have been with us for for over 30 years you know they're they're key people and there's 20 of us in total company-wide and you know we work alongside them there's no hierarchy and 
you know, everybody's got their jobs and their duties and their respectable relationships. So, you know, our, our growth, uh, you know, everybody says you need a good lawyer, you need a good banker, but you know, those are part of the puzzle, but the number one at the very, very top is the, is people. I think it really speaks to the value of your business that you're able to retain your workers for so long, especially in an industry where labor is really difficult to find. Yep. And, you know, we've, we've had some challenges over the years too. And, you know, there's, there's been times when, you know, the industry was put flat in its knees, like when BSE hit, you know, I remember some of the, some of the guys coming in and girls coming and say, is there going to be a future here? Should we look for something else? And we did our very best to make sure those people were taken care of and, and retained and kept as well. So, And speaking to that, what would you say the biggest challenge of your operation is? Yeah, I would say the biggest challenge, you know, over the years has been things we can't control. And, you know, in the late 70s, like I said, interest rates, uh, you know, I remember farmers talking about uh, their their mortgages that they had at the time were, you know, when they started out, were at 10%. And within a year, they went to 20%. Demand loans at 22%. Um, you know, trade challenges over the years, there's been countervailed duties put ahead, you know, challenges with the U.S. Uh, when BSE hit back in 2003, we went from being a top-end, high-end ag account for the bank. And, and overnight, we were thrown into special loans. Uh, we had a large cattle inventory. We had a lot of debt. It was manageable, but when something like that comes along and and takes your cattle's inventory value and slashes it into a third, a fifteen hundred dollar steer became five hundred dollar steers. It didn't matter how much equity you had; everybody was tossed into special loans. So, you know, I would say the things we can't control, outside influences. You know, a risk management strategy is probably key for managing part of the risk. Right. So I can imagine that your biggest challenge per se changes as time goes on. Yeah. Like I remember when we, uh, you know, over the years we were concentrating on on setting up grazing units and, you know, those times seemed awfully simple. Um, we used to graze 27, 2,800 head of cattle of our own and another couple thousand out on grass. And, and now if you tried to find grass for even a thousand head here in Bruce County, you would have your hands full trying to organize that. So, you know, things change and, you know, we don't graze as many cattle, but we do have as many cattle on feed. They're just in different facilities and, and handled differently. Right. And are all your cattle in Ontario? So we rely heavily on Western Canada for our feeder cattle. And I think right now, uh, and nothing against the local cattle, there's just not enough of them. Yeah. So, you know, the highest priced calves in North America were the local one. So, you know, we go to Western Canada and we source a lot of feeder cattle out of there. And, uh, you know, they enter our system as calves in the fall and some are destined to go to a grazing program. Some are going to backgrounding yards, some going to backgrounding yards short term and then going to the feedlots. But everything pretty well winds up, you know, here in Ontario. There's a handful of cattle in Alberta right now, and that's the only place for backgrounding. And that was just because, you know, in the fall in the West, logistics moving all these cattle is a challenge. So we ended up placing some in, in Alberta, which we've been feeding there for quite a few years anyways. Everything's finished here in Ontario. I don't finish any cattle outside of Ontario anymore. Okay. This question is probably going to go hand in hand with my last one, but what would you say your largest input costs are? Number one and number two are the feeder cattle. And today, a 630 or 40 pound steer is going to cost $2,100. And then when I take that 630 pound steer and I... I keep them and put a thousand pounds on them. 
That's going to cost fourteen to fifteen hundred dollars to do it with interest and all costs included. So those are our, our number one and number two costs. Okay. And I can imagine that feed is a significant portion of that cost. Yep. So that that gain of uh, of a thousand pounds at fifteen hundred dollars is, is basically ninety percent of that is feed. Right. That, that feed and overhead, you know, we, we grow, we, we farm uh, we farm as well. And, you know, most of our feed ends up going through our own livestock, but we still purchase a lot of corn. We purchase distiller's grain every week. We purchase supplement. And, you know, that $1,500 cost in total would be probably $1,200. So that would be direct purchase of feed. Right. And backing up to what you said, your biggest challenges is things you can't control. It seems like your feed management is probably something that you actually can take advantage of controlling to improve efficiency. Yep. So back in 1986, we sent our first sets of cattle down to Kansas to go on feed. And back in those days, we were getting 2.5 or 2.6 pounds a day here locally. And our first pens of cattle that we sent, the gain was 3.7, 3.8 pounds a day. So we made an effort to get there and see how it was being done. And we learned quickly that feed bunk management was their number one thing that they concentrated on. Feed delivery, animal management. Those are all things that took us from, you know, two and a half pounds a day to, to 3.7 to four pounds a day. You know, now on steers, if we're not hitting that four pound a day mark, we're seriously looking to find out what went wrong. Right. And can you go over the strategy you use for your feed bunk management? Yep. So, you know, each pen is managed individually and uh, the rations are all, we use a really good program. It's called Performance Beef. It's It's been out for a few years. We we're one of the first ones in Canada to uh, use it. And you can manage your feed inputs. You can manage your pens. You can manage your bunk management very well with a program like that. And we found that over the years with the bunk management, we even feed, you know, the same time every day, the same amount. We try to flatline our intakes and we try to make sure that we don't have these roller coaster rides with the feed bunks. And I see a lot of, and I'm not knocking them, but I see a lot of places where feed is dumped in front of the cattle. And if they're busy harvesting or weekends and whatever, you know, the bunks get filled up, which leads to digestive upsets and problems with intakes, spoiled feed. And, you know, that's just probably the number one cause of a lot of problems. Right. And I think there was a bit of research before the feed pusher was even put in your burn on how it affects cattle behavior with your bunk management and how you push up your feed and when it's laid down and that kind of stuff. Yeah, we still have uh, J bunks and we rely heavily on them. There's probably 90% of our cattle are fed in J bunks still. But you know, we, we have a clean, slick bunk approach. So we feed 40% in the morning, 60% in the afternoon. We try to have flat-lined intakes, like I mentioned before. One thing we found with feeding on the on the ground, we started using a skid steer with a blade on it to push it up, but that required two trips pushing the feet up that way. It required one of the guys or girls to do it. And a skid steer today costs more than a feed pusher. So when the feed pusher feed pusher came along and, you know, you see lots of them in, uh, you know, not only dairy, but sheep. And uh, we just found like, let's, let's try it and let's see what happens. So for us, you know, what we noticed first thing is you can set it for multiple times throughout the day. It coordinated with our times for feeding. It also worked seamlessly. Um, and there's lots of good manufacturers of them out there. The infrastructure's out there to, to service them as well and uh, maintain them. And we would come in in the mornings with all the feed pushed in, everything cleaned up. 
And prior to that, we had to come in with the skid steer first thing in the morning, push it in. And this way we, we come in with a very clean bunk and there's nothing left and there's nothing wasted either. Right. So it alleviates some extra chips up and down the alley. Yep. So I think we're up to six times a day with the feed pushing. And uh, so we can set it throughout the day to coordinate with their feeding times. Literally every time that thing went through, it would stimulate cattle to come up and eat. So our feed was always cleaned up in the mornings when we got there and the bunks were ready to put fresh feed in. You know, that wasted feed that you see when there's feed on top of feed, it adds up over time. You know, it, it literally cuts into your conversion. Your cost of gain goes higher. You know, it's, it's just a total waste. So. Right. And I want to ask you more questions about this, but I want to back up because you mentioned that you feed 40% in the morning and 60% in the afternoon. Why are you doing that? And do you see benefits to feeding twice a day? 40% in the morning allows the cattle to consume feed from seven o'clock in the morning till one o'clock. And it's pretty well cleaned up by them. And then when we come back in or when the crew comes back in at the yards between 1.30 and 3 o'clock, there's fresh feed going down and we're not putting feed on top of feed again. So the bunks are cleaned up, there's fresh feed going in. What we notice is the cattle at those times a day, hardly any of them even get up to eat fresh feed. They've had their morning meal, they're digesting. At one o'clock in the afternoon, you'll see 85 to 90% of the cattle lying down, chewing their cud, ruminating like they're supposed to. Okay. So it seems like the key here is having a slick bunk, but not for several hours. Yep. So when you're reading your bunks, you know, if you see where there's lick marks and the cattle are uh, charged the bunk when you're feeding, you have to adjust your feed that you're presenting in front of them. And you know, we try to do it half a pound increments per head. So if there's 50 cattle in the pen, you know, it's a slight increase. It's not a lot. But, you know, when you flatline those intakes and everything's within a half a pound per head per day, you're managing the cattle better. There's less bloats. There's less acidosis um, with that approach. Okay. So Christoph and I actually spoke to this a little bit too. It seems like it's really a, a win-win situation if you change your management strategy a bit. You know, the number two cost other than the feeder cattle. And you need the feeder cattle. So I would say our number one cost is feed. Whether you grow it, whether you buy it, if you buy it all, you've got to be really sharp with the pencil. And, you know, growing is expensive too. This year, with the way the corn input costs are, and, you know, a quarter point conversion uh, on your cost to gain could literally put your feed cost up a, a dime per pound. So, you know, if you think you're going to feed cattle for a dollar twenty-five and your cost come in at a dollar thirty-five and you put six hundred pounds on, you're out sixty dollars per head just in your feed cost. So right. that's how fast it happens. And you know, bunk management, bunk presentation, feed management. You know, I you see lots of people worry about getting that extra bushel of corn, and we we strive to get as maximum production too. But then they put it up into the pit soil, they cover it, they do everything right. The agronomists are all happy. But then you put it in the feed bunk and then you put feed on top of feed or you put three days worth of feed out or two days worth of feed out. It's like you've done everything right up to a certain point. And I'm not saying they're doing it wrong, but with a finishing diet, heifers and steers, you know, they act differently when there's a lot of feed put in front of them. They gorge when they feel like eating, they go eat. They probably eat too much. And those roller coaster feed intakes never get you low costs again. Right. And I guess, again, that goes back to what you said, your challenges is you can't control the price of feed. You can't control the price of cattle, but you can control the interaction between the two and how efficient can actually grow your cattle. Yep. So if we have closeouts and, you know, the gain is at four pounds a day and the conversions are high fives and low sixes, we know we've done everything right and or as best we could. If, you're, if your death loss from a calf is at 1% or less, which we were there, 
And, uh, you know, you maximize your production per animal and you still lose money. It's usually because of some outside influences that uh, cause that. And, you know, you can contract cattle as well and you can head yourself off. But, you know, I remember when BSE hit, we had lots of cattle contracted and those contracts weren't worth the paper they were wrote on. So anyways, that's just how it went. Yeah, I can imagine that that was a major struggle for everybody involved at that point. Yeah, I uh, I can handle one uh, one event like that in a lifetime, but I don't think <laughs> I can. I bet. So you mentioned that you fed cattle outside of Ontario. What would you say the benefits to feeding here are, and why do you feed more of your cattle in Ontario now than you did? Yep. So there's you know there's lots of advantages to feed cattle here in Ontario. And one of them is uh, is the amount of feed that we can actually produce. The feed that we've got, um, you know, I fed cattle in Kansas and Texas and Western Canada, all across the prairies, right out to Southern BC. And, you know, we've got an advantage on feed. We've got lots of rainfall. Even if we get some dry spells, we still have, you know, an abundance of feed because we get moisture. And we've got, for the most part, you know, it's class one farmland that, uh, you know, you can get three and four cuts of hay. Um, our grazing rotational grazing programs are 275 300 pound gain we've got five ethanol plants that we can pull off there's an abundance of other byproducts that we can feed we've got two federal plants that we go to and and you know they're all within an hour and a half from our feedlots as well and uh we've got facilities that you know are second to none you've got these new uh structures that are going up to replace some of the older ones We're, we're building one ourselves right now and you know the cattle are, they don't have the elements exposed to them. Between heat and direct sunlight in the summertime and blizzards in the wintertime, like I said, the two number one costs of our, and they're at record highs today, you know, so why why have your cattle exposed to the elements? Why have your feed exposed to the elements? You know, if I look down the road at the futures market and, and pricing, you know, a finished year is worth $3,700. You know, we can maximize the cattle performance in these new structures and there's lots of good old structures as well that are doing a fine job the one we're building is to replace a slatted floor barn that was built in 1980 so it's done its day it's never not had cattle in it and you know it'll be replaced with probably two we cover barns they're nice airy light barns they're not slatted floors either nothing wrong with slats just for our farming purposes we're composting our manure and uh, this will work better with the compost so how are you going to implement your feeding program in this new barn? Will you have J-bunks or tables? Yep. So we're going to be uh, putting the feed flat in front of them. We've got a, a brand new feed pusher coming as well. And, you know, the service tech, he only lives about two miles away. So we're confident that we've got the infrastructure in place to support it. And we're looking forward to seeing it uh, working in this new barn. That's very convenient that the service tech is right around the corner. Yeah, that, that was one of our decisions on the brand. There's several brands that we could have gone with, but we know these people. And like I said, they're just two miles away. So, Right. So I think we're actually starting to near the end, which flew by. But I'd really like to know if you have any future goals or things that you're working towards with your operation. You know, I would say keeping everything as integrated as possible. So, you know, the farming operation, we've got our own land. We've got long-term leased land. Feeds well into our, our cattle feeding. The grazing cell that we have in the Bruce Peninsula. And farther north, there's one as well. Feeds well for our cattle supplies. You know, our marketings are pretty consistent every week. We try to have as many uh, cattle going as we can. And, you know, risk management uh, is a big part of what we're doing as well. So, you know, I guess my long-term plan is to keep, I would say, slow growth at times and maybe some speeded up growth. 
there's lots of opportunities out there. And, you know, for us, taking advantage of opportunities at the right time is, is probably what we'll keep doing. The farmland in Ontario is as good as there is. And I've traveled a lot of areas. And every time I come back, I keep thinking, you know, is there any farms I would not want? Or would I ever want to trade to where I just came from? And I just keep coming back to Ontario. And it's such a good area to feed cattle and, and raise crops. And, you know, the other day I was talking to a soybean grower. He feeds quite a few cattle. He's talking about his yields. They're every bit as good a yield in our area as it is anywhere in Ontario. And I also talked to an elevator that was loading a boat of corn to go in Godridge to go to Ireland. And I'm thinking, you know, we're only 35, 40 minutes away from an international port. And how many places in the world have that kind of access? You know, we're very fortunate, the infrastructure for not only for raising cattle, but, you know, farming here in Ontario, everything is here. I can imagine that a lot of our listeners probably agree with you too. Well, on that note, I think that's a really good place to clue things up. And I think this conversation has been very valuable. So I really appreciate your time. I know you're incredibly busy. No, uh, anytime. I'm happy to be here. Well, thanks so much. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thanks for listening today. I'm Javi Carter, your host for We've Got the Beef. Good Times by Scott Holmes is the track used for this episode for our music. For more information, check out the link to the Beef blog in the show notes. And please feel free to reach out if you have any questions or ideas for topics you'd like to hear about from us.